Good morning. 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 We want to uh, welcome everyone to class this morning and want to welcome our online listeners. I was in Kansas City uh, last week doing a six-part seminar on the mind, and many visitors and listeners told me how they listen to us every week and feel like they're part of our class because they know uh, know so many of you by voice and by name, and they, they want to be here and participate, and they're listening and say, oh, I just want to say say something, and oftentimes, obviously, they, they can't, but they want to let you know that they're listening and, and with us. So let's begin with, with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study your word today. We ask that your spirit of love and truth be with us, that our hearts and minds be open, and that you will fill this room with your presence. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly, Agents of Hope, God's Great Missionaries. And the lesson title this week is A Pillar of Mission, The Apostle Peter. Anybody have any thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns about Peter in general that you'd like for us to discuss today at all? Yeah. Yes. I find it hard to believe that he was not converted. Uh, all the work that he did, and everything that means work, the regal work, it seemed like he had that connection with God until after he died Christ. You're talking about when Jesus said to him in Luke, uh, when you were converted, feed my sheep? The, the Greek word can mean converted or when you turn back or turn around. But Sister White in the Acts of the Apostles talks about how until he, after that, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and stuff. He did not really understand his mission or understand Christ's mission and all that until after he was converted. Well, so what's your question? You have a hard time believing? He believed with everything that he did in his close relationship with Christ that he did not realize that he didn't Prior. Yeah. Okay. What about Judas? Did Judas go out with the 70? Did he go out two by two? Did he perform miracles? Did he do all the same things Peter did prior to the betrayal? But he, I think he had a different, I think Judas had a different idea when he went into it. We often look at conversion as being a once, bam, done, completed, or whatever, okay? We don't look like marriage that way. Yes, we are always married, but you are closer in relationship to your um, spouse, and there are many events that happen in your life that draw you even closer. And that there's a recommitment to that relationship. And I think conversion is the same way. This is why also speaks in other areas about we often cannot speak of a day or hour in which we are converted. Yes, for some people, conversion can be a, a specific point. Other people, it's a gradual progression. But I think what's going on, actually, in the case of Peter, remember in the upper room, Jesus said, you know, I have prayed for you. The devil wants to sift you. Uh, when you are converted, feed my sheep. It's all that thing. And what was Peter's response to what he said? Peter's response was, though everyone else fail you, I will give my life for you. Remember? Was Peter lying to Jesus? No. no. He sincerely believed what he said. <clears throat> he wasn't lying. Uh, does that mean he was able to follow through with what he said? Did he follow through and did he stay faithful and loyal? Or immediately after Peter said that to Jesus, Jesus said to him, Before the cock throws, you will deny me three times. So Peter says, Look, everybody else goes, I'm going to give my life. I will never forsake you. He wasn't, you say he wasn't lying. I don't think he was lying either. He wasn't, wasn't he being truthful as far as he knew himself? But did he know himself? What did he not know that Jesus knew? His weakness. Say that louder. What 
What fear could do. And what is the essence of conversion? Real, true conversion. Is real, true conversion coming to the point that you recognize Jesus as the Son of God and has come and given his life to save mankind? Is that conversion? No. It's not. Is the conversion coming to understand the truth about God as revealed in Christ? No. No. The devils believe and tremble. Right? They believe. They know who God is. They know, they know the issues. No, true conversion is coming to that point where self has been replaced by love for God and love for others. And so Peter, while he loved Christ, hadn't quite got to the point that he loved Christ enough that he was ready to sacrifice himself for Christ. And so when the pressure came, embarrassment, and there's, there's different types of self-sacrifice. Peter actually, remember, in, when they came to arrest Christ, Peter whipped out the sword and he was willing to fight to the death for Christ, remember? Didn't he still have a mistaken he was willing, concept of what Christ was there to do? Yes, but remember, they came with soldiers. So he whipped out his sword. He was willing to fight and risk his life in that context. But when it came to pro- public perception and humiliation, you're one of them. No, not me. He was afraid of what people would think of him. Afraid of his reputation. Afraid of embarrassment. Afraid of humiliation. So fear was still there. But pride is not much stronger. But exactly, pride is part of fear. Fear is part of pride. They're connected. Okay, and so ultimately, his conversion came after he denied the Lord, and he saw the Lord's face, and then he was convicted about how ugly the thing was inside of him that would cause him to do that. To the so, I think he loved Christ all along, but I didn't think he realized how strong his own sense of self-preservation and self-motivation was in his own heart. And it was at that point that he was really convicted, converted to the point he'd rather die than betray the Lord again. He loved the Lord that much. So love ultimately won out in Peter's heart at that point. And that from that point forward, you know, Peter was in many ways, and we're going to talk about that right now, in fact. Let's go to Thursday's lesson. Thursday's lesson. It was after Pentecost, talking about growing in grace in Thursday's lesson. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon Peter, and he did a wonderful job of preaching, Yes. We would say he was converted by this point, yes? Right? So this is post-conversion, post-empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we're downstream from Pentecost now. So downstream from Pentecost, downstream from conversion, downstream from pouring out of the Spirit, empowerment and so forth, enlightenment, um, was Peter complete in his understanding, principles, and methods, or did he still have more growth to do? Did Peter have the gift of prophecy? You know, the spiritual gifts, gifts of prophecy. Could Peter be called a prophet? Yes. Well, it's because he's called an apostle, and most people put the apostles above the prophets. You know, that, that hierarchy, teachers, preachers, and all the... There's a certain hierarchy of the gifts, and the apostles are like right at the top, the 12 apostles. Prophets come a little lower for a lot of people in the way they do it. But did Peter have the gift of prophecy? The Holy Spirit, inspired. Was he an inspired prophet of God? Yes. Okay. Was he wrong on some things? Yes. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that prophets can be wrong? Hmm. Let's think about that. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. This is Paul, of course, writing. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now, this is, this is Paul, who's also an inspired apostle and prophet, is telling us that Peter, the inspired apostle and prophet, post-Pentecost, post-conversion, was clearly in the wrong. If Peter was clearly in the wrong, and apostles and prophets can be in the wrong, 
and Peter needed to be corrected on some issues, what about other prophets? Can other prophets be wrong? Well, that's where we're going, aren't we? But before we get there, we should probably check. Remember, remember the story of 1 Kings 13. 1 Kings 13, the story of the young and the old prophet. And the young prophet gets a message from the Lord to go and uh, give a message to the king. And he is instructed by the Lord to not stop on your way there or on your way back for any reason. And on the way back, uh, the old prophet finds out what the young prophet has done. He gets on his donkey, catches the young prophet. And in 1 Kings 13, 18 through 22, it says, uh, the old prophet says, and this is from the Bible, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. This is still reading directly from the word. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate it and drank at his house. Now listen to this. Okay, this guy, you say, oh, he's a false prophet. He's lying. He's not a true prophet. He's a false prophet. Listen to the very next words. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord. You have not kept the command of the Lord. So wait a minute. This prophet who just lied, the word of the Lord came to him, and now he's prophesying the truth. Is he a false prophet or a true prophet? Being a prophet, you still have a mind. You still think you can still be wrong. But that's speaking for the Lord all the time. Yes, exactly. So here we have a prophet who actually has the true gift of prophecy. The Holy Spirit, not the not the spirit of Satan, is inspiring his mind. Yet he presented a presentation, claiming it from the Lord that wasn't from the Lord. It was a lie. Why do you think God put this story in the Bible? Mess us up. No. <laughs> to mess us up, she says. To mess us up. Second Kings, what? What did you say it was in? It was First Kings thirteen. You start verse eighteen. You'll see it. Teaches us to be discerning. Oh, say yes, exactly. Teaches us to be discerning, which means we think. For ourselves. See, one of the dangers of inspiration is that, well, they've got the gift of prophecy, so whatever they said, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No thinking here. If you got it from an inspired source, well, then it must be the case. We stop thinking. Leave our brain at the door. Check your brain at the door. Yeah. Shows us that God picks people not based on our perception of their holiness, but his perception of our needs. Oh, that's a great and excellent point that we're going to actually expand even further in just a moment. So that's a, I think it's my very next point. That's a great point. Somebody mentioned Ellen White. What about Ellen White? You know, as I travel around the country, I get lots of questions from people. Well, what's this deal on the Adventist and Ellen White? What she saw and what she heard is different than what she may have spoken. I think I remember reading that she has written one time that she trembles to write because people will think it's right from the Lord and it isn't, but it's something like that. Well, I like what you're saying. Have you ever met anybody who had the idea that if Ellen White wrote it, it must be true? Yes. And if Ellen White wrote it, you can't question it. And have you ever even been in discussions with people that if there's a, a discussion of issues, if they can find an Ellen White quote to support them that just ends the discussion. Boop, Ellen White says, Sister White says, boop, okay, all discussion is now settled. Yes. Is that how it's supposed to work? No. no, this is an abuse. Can Ellen White be wrong? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but how do we know when 
she's right when she's wrong. Yeah, how do you know when the Bible's right and when the Bible's wrong? I don't think the Bible's ever wrong. Interesting. Didn't you? Now, it might tell you, like they said, where this guy was wrong. doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. It's in the Bible telling you about somebody's life, but it doesn't mean the Bible's wrong. Okay, okay. So maybe we should rephrase that. How do you tell when other prophets are wrong? Or how do you tell what part of the Bible you're supposed to follow? Are you supposed to dash babies against the rock? Psalms 137, isn't it? Psalms 137. Happy is the man who takes his enemy's babies and smashes their head on the rock. So we have a Bible promise right there, inspired. And, and it's a blessing. In some verses, they blessed is the man. Want a blessing? Let's go find some enemies, take their babies, and smash their heads on the rock, and we'll be blessed. You're not reading that out of context. <laughs> Psalms 137. It says, um, you can read the context. It says, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughters of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Happy is the man who does that. Happy man, happy man. So, well, what is the context? Is it in revenge for something that's been... That's right. It's what the Edomites and the Babylonians did to us. Human, that's a human emotion to want to want an exact revenge. Yes. Should we follow that biblical guidance? Is the Bible a code book? Or is the Bible designed to open our minds to come to know God and think for ourselves? How about the writings of Ellen White? This is out of Evangelism, page 256. The testimonies of Sister White should not be carried to the front. God's word is an unerring standard. What's an unerring standard? God's word. The testimonies are not to take the place of the word. Great care should be exercised by all believers to advance these questions carefully and always stop when you have said enough. Let all prove their position from the scriptures and substantiate every point they claim as truth from the revealed word of God. Is that how it works? Or this one? This is out of Evangelism 256. Um, it says, The more we look at the promises of the Word of God, the brighter they grow. The more we practice them, the deeper will be our understanding of them. Our position in faith is in the Bible. And never do we want any soul to bring the testimonies ahead of the Bible. Hmm. And you know why this is so profound? There are other uh, religious organizations that claim to have had prophetic gift in modern times. And those organizations claim that their prophetic gifts supersede the Bible. That they've come to be correct the Bible, to replace the Bible, to show where the Bible has been in error. What's really beautiful about Sister White is, and I think when you hear these contexts, you're going to say, well, I have no problem with that. Because she always says, if you find anything that disagrees with my writings in the Scripture, go with the Scripture. Okay, here's another one. Daughters of God, 272. I do not claim infallibility or even perfection of Christian character. I am not free from mistakes and errors in my life. Had I followed my Savior more closely, I should not have to mourn so much my unlikeness to his dear image. Is that not good? Yeah. Okay. Or, counsels to writers. There is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed, that all of our expositions of Scripture are without error. Now, who's she talking about all of our? Seventh-day Adventists. 
the fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. See, do you like the attitude here? Our minds should be open. We should be open to ask questions. If new, new insights, new evidences come forth from God's Word, we should be able to incorporate those and move past the position we've held for years and years. And then the last one, Councils to Writers, page 37. We have many lessons to learn and many, many to unlearn. We? Who's this we? The church, Seventh-day Adventists. God and heaven alone are infallible. Those who think that they will never have to give up a cherished view, never have occasion to change an opinion, will be disappointed. As long as we hold to our own ideas and opinions with determined persistency, we cannot have unity for which Christ prayed. Did you find this as a healthy attitude? Look, I don't ever claim perfection. The Bible is our standard. We make our doctrines based on them. We should have an open mind to, as, as truth unfolds and, and new ideas come in, we should be able to investigate closely. And if it's true position, loses nothing by further investigation. This is a great position. I find it very comforting and healthy. And so the take-home point of all this that we're learning from Peter's life, because Peter, the inspired apostle of God, after Pentecost, after conversion, was clearly in the wrong and had to be corrected. We learn that prophets, inspired people, people used of God can still make mistakes. And so the lesson is, the lesson for us. Don't check your brain at the door. Don't check your brain at the door. Don't let another human being be your standard. Don't trust your uh, integrity and the decisions that you have to make in governance of yourself to some other person's judgment. Ultimately, you and each of us will stand before God ourselves, and be uh, required to give a reason for the decisions we made with our life. And if the answer is, well, my pastor said I ought to do that. Yes? But you still need to be able to stand firm in your beliefs. You need to have a base. Yeah, and how do we get to stand firm in our beliefs? So that you can pass it on to others, but... Which is a firmer place to stand in a belief system that says, well, you know, I believe in X, Y, and Z because my mother taught me that, because my grandma was the sweetest Christian lady you ever wanted to meet, and she believed it that way, and if she was so sweet, I can't imagine it could be wrong, because my pope says it, because my pastor says it. I mean, is that a strong position for our beliefs, or is a strong foundation for our belief based on, here is the evidences, here are the reasons, here are the facts upon which I believe? Let's take something real simple, something we've used before, brushing your teeth. I brush my teeth because, well, my mom taught me to. And, and if my mom taught me, it must be right. Is that as strong a position as, well, because if I don't, they'll decay and they'll rot. And I don't want that on my teeth. Which is a stronger position for brushing the teeth? But there are still people that disagree that both have evidence to back up their opinions. And spiritual things? Everything. Every aspect of life. Spiritual. Just, I mean, it's, it's something that happens. How do you... Yeah, and this is, of course, what I do as a living. Um, there are differences of opinions, and, and people are free to believe whatever they want. The facts are, though, not all beliefs are equally healthy. I have patients who really believe that their cigarette smoking helps them breathe better. They, they do believe that. Uh, my, I, I breathe better when I smoke. No, are they free to believe that? Is that belief as healthy as believing that cigarette smoke is damaging their lungs and killing them? So people can believe whatever they want. It doesn't make the belief healthy or reasonable. Yes? This is going to the point that I wanted to make, that we need to, we need to approach this with a, a deal of caution as well. And, you know, the Bible says that there's, there's a way that seems right unto man, but the way it leads into death. 
Um, so we need to we need to appropriately temper our own examination, our own reasoning, and our own evidence uh, evaluation with I don't want to say uh, a healthy dose of fear, but uh, but with a dose of humility and prayerfulness and, a, and an open heart and mind to to learning. See, there's a balance. This is what church fellowship is for. Right. So that you don't go flying off on some tangent like David Koresh. You have a balance of people that you run throughs by, on the one hand, that will allow you to get some perspective if you're going out on some f- tangent. But on the other hand, what happens if Martin Luther would have done that and listened to the church leadership when he had his ideas? You see, there is a place where you continue to stand singly and alone even against all the feedback of the leadership around you. So there is that that balance. And so where's that balance? Romans, I think, 14.5. Speaking of specific religious things, Paul says, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, is he saying anything about which day is actually sacred? He's not saying anything. Is Is he saying anything about, well, it doesn't matter that... Any day is equally good. He's not saying that. He's saying that it does individual believer no good, regardless, until they're convinced in their own mind about what the truth is. We must be persuaded in our own mind, or it does our character transformation no good. If you come to church every week on Sabbath, but the only reason you ever do it is because, well, you know, your mom told you to, and you don't want to disappoint her, you're not even convinced it's really the right day. It could be any day. Uh, are you getting any benefit out of that, really? No. How we're convinced in our mind makes a huge difference. An example that's sometimes used, imagine your grandma, she's 95 years old, she's had a huge stroke, and they've got her on a ventilator, and they tell her, tell you there's nothing they can do for her, they want your permission to, to, to pull the plug, take her off the ventilator, and just let nature take its course. You believe if you do that, it's, it's nothing more than allowing natural consequences to occur, and she may pass into her rest from the results of the illness. Your brother, however, believes that if taking her off the ventilator, he'll be murdering his grandmother. Can each one of you say yes to that with the same consequence to yourselves? Or there be a different consequence to your brother if he does it, if he believes it. Even though he's not murdering her, if in his mind he believes he's murdering her, will he have damage and, and psychological de- dealings to deal with that you don't have? Okay? Each one of us has to be fully persuaded in our own mind about these truths. Yes. Um, it's an off-quoted um, story, but in um, Acts 17.10, where the Bereans questioned and studied to figure out if what Paul said was really true. Exactly. And here was Paul coming, who had visions and everything else, and yet they were commended for questioning and studying <laughs> to find out if, yeah, that, that really is true. And that is the point, isn't it? Because our characters can't grow. We can't transform unless we are willing to, Isaiah 118, come reason it out with God, though your sins are scarlet, but white like snow, the red like crimson, made like wool. It's, it's through that reasoning process that we are able to have the distortions, the misrepresentations put out of our mind, and we become so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, we cannot be moved. That can't happen when somebody else does our thinking for us. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson. The last paragraph, somebody read that for us. It says, starting throughout the book of Acts. Somebody read that, throughout the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, we see Peter and the other church leaders in Jerusalem keeping a close administrative and spiritual eye on the rapid growth of the church, particularly among the Gentiles. 
they realized how easy it would be for them to slip back into paganism or to be led astray by false doctrines. Having come to Jesus as babes in the faith, these new believers needed to be weaned from the, quote, milk of the word and firmly planted in solid doctrine. Yeah, to keep them from slipping back into paganism. And when I read that, I thought, is there any danger of such things happening in our church? That our church could slip into paganism by the way we convert people into our church. Slip further into paganism? Further into paganism, yeah. Anybody want to give some examples of how that can be happening in our church today? It seems to me that some some pastors, when they make altar calls, they do it in a very coercive way, which I think, you know, that's not God's way. Is it paganism? I'm not sure, but it's... Okay. It's... it's Coercive with... People's minds, you know, the... You know, we're not gonna we're not gonna leave here until you know so many people have come up front. You know, God wants one. What's one yeah. of you? And how about the ever ever altar calls with certain implied threats? You don't know when your probation will close. You could leave this church today, and 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 da da da. da. And if you don't, I mean, certain implied threats. You know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, well, you know what God will have to do to you in the judgment day. And yes. That allowing emotions and the spiritualistic side of our spiritual or our relationship with God is probably dangerous too because we allow emotions control our decisions too much and think that God's impressing us in certain ways. Okay, so the emotional side, flipping the mind upside down, James chapter 1, talking about uh, God, uh, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one is ever tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings or emotions. So putting feelings in charge of the religious experience, this is, of course, a big part of pagan practices, very emotional, sensual-based practices. So putting emotions in charge, yes, over here. What about the end of every one of our prayers when we say amen? That was something that the Egyptians said, you know, worshiping there. You know, I'm not familiar with that. I hadn't heard that before. It's interesting. I'll have to, to check that out. Yeah. Do you not think on the day of Pentecost there's a lot of emotion in that room when the Holy Spirit was poured out? Yeah, there was emotion, but which, where did the emotion come from? Did the emotion come from emotions leading, or did it come from enlightenment and awareness and seeing more tr- clearly the truth about God? But then again, I think sometimes when these calls are made or whatever, I think... A lot of that emotion can come from the Holy Spirit too. It doesn't all just because people are emotional doesn't always mean that it's a negative emotion. It's yeah. The- Emotions, we have an example. Men on the road to Emmaus, walking along discouraged. Christ comes to begin walking with them. And then he takes them through the scriptures, remember? And he shows them the evidences, the truth of scriptures about how all these things were going to be fulfilled in the life of the Messiah. And then afterwards they said, did not our hearts burn within us as uh, the, the word was revealed? So there's this tremendous emotional response to the question about it. But based on enlightenment of truth, as the mind becomes aware of the significance, I mean, that those aha moments that we've all had, there's a tremendous emotional response, to be sure. It feels good. Do you ever wrestle with a problem? It could be a math problem, a physics problem, a Bible problem. You've wrestled, 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 and you might have wrestled for days with this problem, and finally the light goes on. Ah, you get it. You ever had that experience? Doesn't that feel good? That's an emotional response. It feels so good that people can easily be counterfeited into going for that experience of emotions without any enlightenment. That's what was being talked about over here, when the emotions are what is primary without actual enlightenment growing in truth. That's the danger. But the core of paganism, the core of paganism, what is it? The 
Appeasement. God is a wrathful and angry God who is mad at us and needs appeasement in order to be kind, forgiving, and gracious. The core of paganism. And how do we have that still affecting our church? Because much of evangelism in our church is by presenting standalone doctrines. We take, pick a doctrine. This, I mean, think about the evangelism you've seen it practice in our church throughout the history of our church. Much of it goes like this. We'll have a seminar and we'll do uh, so many nights a week and we'll do the beasts. And we'll show the prophetic pro- progression of time, the, the standalone doctrine of prophecy. We'll do the Sabbath. Sabbath from the Bible. I mean, we can really show that the Bible Sabbath is, is Saturday. No, nobody can argue that. Even the Protestant uh, Sunday-keeping churches all agree that the Bible Sabbath is, is Saturday. It's so obvious. Um, we can prove that point. State of the dead, we can prove that point. Uh, we can go through uh, and just every one of these doctors, baptism by immersion and so forth. Prove the point. Prove the point. Prove the point. Prove the point from the Bible. And people are convinced on the weight of evidence, yep, these are true facts, doctrines, and teachings of the Bible. And they go, you know what, I want to come to a church that's more consistent with what the Bible teaches. And I see that your church has more consistency amongst the constellation of doctrines that you teach that are more Bible-founded, so this must be a more Bible-based church, so I'm going to come here. But we never change the core element of who God is, why Christ had to die. And so they come into the church still believing that God is an angry, wrathful God. And if you don't keep the Sabbath, if you don't get baptized in the right way, if you don't do the certain rituals the proper way, then if you don't accept the blood of Jesus as your payment to the Father, and he's up there pleading, my blood, my blood, Father, if you don't have that, then the Father will kill you in the end and make you suffer. So they still have at the core pagan conceptions of God. And then we have those people come in, they go to seminary with the same pagan conceptions of God, and they go out and begin preaching throughout our church, and our church has been taken over by this view that God is an angry, wrathful God who must be appeased, and his son paid the penalty for his father, so the father won't kill us. Paganism at its core. Yes? That's the same method that um, Jonah used. Uh, Actually, the message from Jonah was a message, though. But it wasn't the message, um, I'm going to kill you in the end. It's I'm going to put you in the grave right now. I may not be able to tell a difference for them. But why was that message used by Jonah? Did Jonah, the prophet, actually believe God was going to do it? No, Jonah knew he was merciful. And why didn't Jonah want to go? Because he knew God wouldn't do it. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we find lots of places in the Old Testament where God uses language like that. I'm the Lord, I'm wrathful, I'm angry. Ezekiel chapter 24. Your parent analogies are are great with this. Sometimes a parent has to raise his voice to get the attention of his children. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Put on the cooking pot. Put it on. Pour out the water. Put in the pieces of meat. All their pieces, legs and shoulders. Fill it to the best. Woe to the city of bloodshed. I will pile up the wood highs. I will heap the kindling wood. Cook the meat. Mix the spices. Let the bones be charred. Set the empty pot on the coals till it becomes hot and copper glows red. And the impurities may be melted away. But you will not be cleansed from your impurities. You will not be clean until you have the full force of my wrath against you. Okay? That's what it's saying in Ezekiel 24. Pretty harsh stuff. But what actually happened? And 28 says, but what actually happened? God speaking these words, threatening all this kind of stuff, but what actually happened? The Babylonians came, and the Babylonians destroyed the city, not God. Then why did God speak this way? Hosea 4.16. The Israelites are stubborn. Stubborn like a mule. 
How can the Lord feed them like lambs in a meadow? What does that mean? They don't listen. How can I speak soft words when they don't listen? So parents, you have a child, he's 10 years old, he's stubborn, stubborn like a mule. You tell him to pick up his toys, he ignores you. You tell him to turn off his Game Boy, he talks back at you. You tell him to clean up his room, he mumbles under his breath and doesn't do it. He's stubborn, stubborn like a mule. And now, uh, some of you have got these children, I see that. Um, (laughs) All righty. And now you've gone out to Cloudian Canyon out here with your family, and uh, your 10-year-old meets another 10-year-old, and they're playing Frisbee, and your 10-year-old's heading to the cliff, chasing the Frisbee, running towards the cliff. And you shout at your child, stop! But your child's stubborn, stubborn like a mule. Your child doesn't listen. What do you do? It's too far to reach. Do you shout louder? Yes, you shout louder, but he's still heading for the cliff because he doesn't listen. Do you threaten? Do you risk threatening? If you don't stop, I'll beat your bottom raw. And if he still doesn't listen and he goes over the cliff, do you then climb down, get out your belt, and beat him? (laughs) Obviously, you don't have to. Do you pull out a rifle to shoot him quickly on his fall to make sure justice and punishment is meted out appropriate to the crime before he hits the bottom? Because he violated your law. Because he violated your explicit directions and rules. Do you have to inflict that upon him? If your child does stop and doesn't go over, do you then pull out your belt and beat him raw? You see, this is what we find happening all through the Old Testament when God is threatening this stuff. He threatened this stuff to Nineveh. Why? Because they were heading into self-destruction, and Nineveh listened. And they stopped. They didn't go over the cliff. And what did God do? He didn't pull out his belt and beat him. And what did Jonah do? I knew you. I wanted to see them guys get it. You wouldn't do it. Oh, makes me so mad. (laughs) So, paganism at its core. An angry, wrathful God who has to be appeased. And we have this infecting our church. And I think the final message, the final final truth to, to complete the Reformation is the truth that God is not a God that requires appeasement. I mean, what does the Bible teach? God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son, but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? Romans 8.31. I mean, we go on and on and on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God has always been on our side from the very beginning. Uh, what do we call it? We call it an emergency measure to keep open the avenue through which the Messiah would come. We could not be saved without the Messiah. Soon as man fell into sin, Genesis chapter 3, God said to the serpent that the seed would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise the seed's heel. What do you think that message was about? There's a Messiah coming. Right in Genesis 3, a Messiah is coming to save this world. Do you think Satan understood that message? Do you think he began working to close down any avenue through which that Messiah was going to arrive on earth? Yes, and that's why the flood came. Why the flood? How many righteous men does the Bible say were on the earth? One. One righteous man. The avenue of who would work with God had gotten very, 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 very small. One man left. And Satan was working to kill that one man. So God said, look, I've got to, I've got to put some kids in the grave, put them to rest. And you understand that they weren't killed by God's definition of death. We have God in the human flesh came on earth, and the disciples, uh, when we went to the little girl, they were having the funeral, and everybody's mourning, and he says, what are you mourning? She's dead. No, she's not dead. She's asleep. And they all laughed at him. Then there was the widow's son, sleep, not dead. Then there's Lazarus. And the disciples, hey, Lazarus is sleeping. Oh, if he's sleeping, he'll be fine. 
Okay, so you can understand what I mean. What you call dad, he's dead. That's not what it really is. He's just sleeping right now. I'm going to go wake him up. See, when God calls dead, nobody's died. Nobody's died that death. They're all just asleep. So when God intervened to put people in the grave, he's putting them in the grave to rest until either the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. There's a resurrection coming for everyone. Because there's no more chance for them yeah, to no, reconcile well, their yeah. ways. That's the question. Is there a chance when they uh, are raised and see God coming? Well, you know, you, again, where does it say there's no more chance? Can somebody tell me that? Wants to live and then... I mean, if we put the pieces together and we value some of the things that Ellen White saw, she saw that at the end of a thousand years, the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven with all the righteous. See, the Bible teaches that Christ comes again in the clouds with his angels. The dead in Christ are raised first. We which are alive will be caught up together with them in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever, First Thessalonians. So there's this resurrection of the righteous at the beginning of the thousand years. We all go to heaven with the Lord for a thousand years. Then the earth lays desolate for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 describes this process. At the end of the thousand years, the New Jerusalem comes back and all the wicked of all time are raised. There's the resurrection of damnation Jesus talked about. Right? New Jerusalem comes down the earth. In what position are the gates of the New Jerusalem in? Open. The gates of New Jerusalem are open. Interestingly enough, gates are open. And then there's quite some period of time, we're not given an exact period of time, but there's quite some period of time because they go about building weapons of war to attack the city. And so for some period of time, the gates of New Jerusalem are wide open, and only when the assault comes to attack the city from Satan does Christ give the command, close the gates. Now, I personally don't believe anybody who is on the outside will come in. But the point is, from what I read all this is, they're not kept out by God. So they come up out of the grave with the exact train of thoughts that they went into the grave. Exact train of thought. Whatever thought they were in, bam, they come up out of the grave. That thought just continues on. That's where they are. And then the gates of New Jerusalem were open. And I believe that God will not restrict anybody by using his power to keep them out. But they are so settled into the lies about God that when they look in to see the New Jerusalem in heaven, what they see, remember what Christ said to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God except he's been born again. If you've not been born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. But Revelation says that when he comes again, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So if you can't see the kingdom of God, unless you're born again, how is it those who pierced him are seeing him come in his glory? Well, because they see the might and power. But the kingdom of God is the kingdom of love. They don't see his character. They don't see his nature. They see this being with power and might, and they see Satan's misrepresentation of God, and they see this fierce deity who requires appeasement, and it scares them. And what do they do? They run, and they hide, and they beg for for the rocks and, and, and trees to fall on them and cover them from him who sits on the throne. Why? Because seeing his power, they still don't see his kingdom. His kingdom is a kingdom of love. And so the same thing's happening at the end of the thousand years when the New Jerusalem with the gates are open. Those on the outside look in. They see the power. They see the brilliance. They see the beauty. But they don't see the kingdom. They think he is a usurper. They think that he's a mean dictator. They think he's an awful tyrant. And they want to throw him off his throne. They don't want to come in and be part of that. So the acquisition of that perspective of God's kingdom happens in this life. That's right. So that's why their fate is effectively sealed when they're put to sleep. Possibly. It's hard to say yes. It's, it's, but, but, but see, but the point is, but see, 
but 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 putting the slave is in God's hand, which we're accepting that it is for emergency measures. Again, I think there's we're we're, we're assuming that all those who went to sleep at the flood are going to be raised in the second resurrection. We don't know that. We don't know that some of them that were put to sleep in the flood won't come up in the first resurrection. And so the point that I'm making is the two resurrections, the first resurrection have all the righteous and all those who won't be amenable to transformation are in the second resurrection. Now, that, where, which resurrection you come up in is not determined by where you died on this earth. And we often make the mistake that if you died in Sodom, if you died in, um, in the 185,000 Assyrians, if you died in one of those platoons that came to arrest Elijah, if you were Uzzah, if you died as one of the firstborn of Egypt, if you died in one of these places where God put you to sleep, we assume that that automatically puts you in the second resurrection. But I don't think that we have any inspiration to conclude that that's the case. Exactly. How do we know that some of those, their 17-year-old soldier conscripted into the army of uh, Ahab wasn't one of the 7,000 who never bowed the knee to, to, to Baal, and, uh, but following his conscripted duties, he's in that platoon to go arrest Elijah, and fire comes down and destroys him. How do we know that there wasn't a soldier like that? So you're telling me at the time of the flood... There might have been more righteous than Noah and his family. Um, we don't know that there wasn't a... Have you ever read the stories of missionary going out and pre- preaching the gospel of Christ to a pagan land, and the daddy, the little girl of the mayor of the town, she's 10 years old, wants to come to church and be a Christian, but daddy's not going to be embarrassed, so he locks her in her room and won't let her go. How do we know there wasn't a little girl who wanted to get on the ark? Daddy said, you're not going to embarrass me. You're staying in your room. Locks her in, the, locks her in his room. Do we know that? Now, I'm not saying it happened, but I'm saying we don't know. We'll have to wait and see, won't we? Shouldn't we keep that possibility open? Yes. They change their minds either. I mean, just like the people on the cross, they have no idea if you know the judge at the end. I don't know. It doesn't say if anyone changes their minds. I mean, before the waters start coming, I mean, you're still alive. So the whole point of our discussion now is, is our church in danger of slipping into paganism by worshiping a pagan conception of God, a God who is severe, cruel, dictator who requires appeasement? And I'm suggesting, yes, it is. And it's been been happening. And we need to see that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father and I are one. This is the truth of the gospel presented by Christ. These other questions, there's a nice heavenly speculation and sanctified speculation. We can, we can talk about those things, but ultimately we won't know some of these answers until the second coming. But we can know the truth about God's character with, with confidence because it's been revealed in the life of Christ. Yes? The other thing I think we can have confidence in is that God knows somebody's true heart and whether if presented with truth, they would be open to following that truth. So it doesn't really matter when they die, where they die, but are they open to receiving truth and following it? And maybe they weren't ever presented with any before they died. Yeah, and then the question will be, those who are on the outside, this is what's going to be really revealed at the end of the thousand years. All those who are on the outside, it's going to be demonstrated by the fact that the gates are open all. They're on the outside by their free choice. That's where they want to be. Not by God's judgment of them and saying you're not allowed in. That's the huge difference. They're in from leaving. And He's not going to prevent any of those from joining on the outside. Of course, none of them will. Yes. The the one story of Peter and his betrayal is an example of of Christ knowing what truly was in Peter's heart. And the story of Job versus his friends again demonstrates that God's knowledge of what was in Job's heart. So exactly. Wrong about Job. Job, 
And um, Peter was wrong about himself. Right. But God's knowledge of who we are and what we are like is true. So he diagnosed, the Bible uses God's judgments are true. You could put it this way. God, God diagnoses accurately. Okay. His diagnosis of our heart condition is always accurate. Yes. I have this, I have this theory uh, that God, uh, Satan is always uh, at our heels wanting to kill us and, or, and that God sometimes allows that to happen when he knows that, that the person, this is the time when they're thinking about God as, as being loving and, and they're having a, a thought about that and he allows the devil to take them at that moment. Because otherwise they would not be saved. Now this comes from um, trying to, to reconcile the death of a of a beautiful seventeen um, year old pilot that that uh, is a friend of the family. You know, she she was out there enjoying. She wasn't religious. Her parents were Adventists, but she was not. But the she was out there uh, uh, flying around the mountains of Colorado and just uh, obviously wasn't watching what she was doing because she entered a, a flying pattern that ended in her death. I don't know if, they, if that's just really trying to uh, stretch the limits. But, um. Sunday's lesson. <laughs> we, you know, we're on page four, four of my notes, and I've got 15 pages of notes. <laughs> so we're not going to get through them today. Sunday's lesson. Um, somebody read the top Bible verse there in Sunday's lesson. I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, first question, what rock is it talking about here? Jesus. Jesus. How do we know it's Jesus? How do we know? I mean, you're right, it's Jesus. Some, there's a whole large body of people that claim it's Peter, but how do we know the church is built on Jesus? All these texts in here. The gates of hell. Okay, the gates of hell shall not prevail against. We'll come to the gates of hell for a moment. Yes? The context is him asking the disciples, who do say that I am? And Peter, as a spokesperson for the group, um, speaks, and he said, you know, some say this, some say that. And he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he comes to that verse that we're familiar with this response. Yes. So the context helps a lot. How about Ephesians? Paul writing in Ephesians. Consequently, you are no. This is Ephesians two nineteen through twenty two. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by His Spirit. So, who's the chief cornerstone according to Paul? We don't have to listen to Paul. Peter himself in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6 says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So according to Peter and Paul, Who's the chief cornerstone? Christ is the cornerstone. Okay. So, did you notice something else in these two texts, according to Peter and Paul, though? What are we? According to the, these two texts, how are we described? Building blocks. The building blocks of? 
Church, church of the yeah. Living Temple. Oh, it didn't say the church. Use a different word. It said temple. It didn't say church. It said building blocks of the temple. Hmm. Hmm. Keep that in mind. It says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In, in, web, in warfare, and we are at war. Remember it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. War over argument, pretension, knowledge, thought is fought where? In the mind. Okay, the gates of hell, we're at war. Gates of hell will not prevail against the rock, the, the, the church founded upon the rock. What kind of a weapon is a gate? You see people running into battle carrying gates. It's a defensive weapon. Exactly. It's defensive, not offensive. And this is a great, I think, in, insight that we need to take as Christians. Satan came into the world in Eden, infected Adam and Eve's uh, minds with lies about God. He took captive their minds. And it says in Isaiah, darkness covered the people, gross darkness the people. Uh, darkness about what? Darkness about God. Our minds were distorted, misrepresented. We believed all these pagan, distorted views about God. But John chapter 1 says a light came into the world, a light which lightens all men. Who's the light? Jesus, Jesus lightens all men about what? Church. God. About God. So Jesus comes into the dark world, Satan's territory, stands toe-to-toe with him, reveals the truth, and drives him off the ground, wins the battle in his human walk on earth as, as a human being. And now, who is supposed to be on the, defen- the offensive because of what Christ has done? The gates of hell. See, he's taken minds captive. He's lost the battle to Christ. He knows that the truth revealed by Christ, the victory won by Christ, will shatter the lies that he's told about God, will set minds free, will open minds to the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so he is now on the defensive, trying to hold the gates closed in people's minds, but the truth is to be presented, which will shatter the gates and set minds free. That is to be our role, taking the truth out, which the gates of hell, the lies of Satan, cannot stand against the truth when it's presented properly in the life of Jesus Christ about, about the Father. So, then, notice what we are. With all that in mind, notice what we are. We are those building blocks that the two apostles and inspired writers describe as a house or a temple of God, which the Holy Spirit dwells in, does this have anything to do with cleansing the temple? To 2,300 days, then the sanctuary or temple will be cleansed. Is there a connection? Can you put the dots together? Well, as you're thinking about that, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4 says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him as... We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will pose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, who is this man of lawlessness? This is after the the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Do you think this man of lawlessness went into heaven and threw Christ off his heavenly throne in the heavenly sanctuary and sat down up there? 
So, Paul's saying that this, the temple of God is going to be defiled. That the temple of God, the man, the man of lawlessness, is going to come. He's going to set himself up and oppose God, and he's going to set himself up in God's temple, claiming himself to be God, but it's not the one in heaven. So where is it? In the mind. So which temple is it that needs cleansing? About what? About God. We have the pagan view of God. You see, Protestant churches came out of Catholicism, and Catholicism came out of paganism. And the Catholicism took paganism right over and have the pagan view of appeasement God. And the Protestant churches have recovered various doctrines, but they have not eliminated the pagan view of God that is central to, uh, to Catholicism. Mary, Jesus, and all the saints pleading to the Father. We just have Jesus pleading to his Father, still paganism, rather than realizing that Jesus was the Father's envoy to finish the work to heal, redeem, and restore us. So... Our minds still need to be cleansed. How do we know? Malachi 3, 1 through 3, which is the same prophecy describing the same event as Daniel eight fourteen, And it says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But he, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and make them like gold and silver. Who are the Levites? They're the priests, the priesthood of believers. So this prophecy, same event as Daniel 14, is telling us that when Christ comes to his temple, when he comes to this last day period of time, he's coming to cleanse the Levites, to cleanse our hearts and minds, to bring the truth that shatters the gates of hell, to set us free, to restore his image within us. This is the final work of preparation to prepare a people ready to meet him when he comes. And we all know what God's glory is, right? His glory is his? Character. Character. Now listen to this prophecy out of Ezekiel. This is going to blow your mind. This is going to just blow your mind. Ezekiel 36, 23 through 37. Excuse me, 23 through 27. I will show the holiness of my great name, and the name is his character. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you. Before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What does that sound like? What is the new covenant? This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. This is the cleansing of the temple. This is the post-1844 message. This is preparing a people ready to be like Jesus so that we will glorify his name on the earth before he comes. This is not exciting stuff. Sounds like we have a lot of work. Oh, we got a lot of lies to kick out of our minds so that we can actually experience this cleansing. And then Romans 16.20, because we've already talked about the Genesis 3 text. Who is going to crush the serpent's head? Who is going to crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3? Jesus. And how does he crush his head? With physical might or by overcoming with love? Love. He crushed the serpent's head at the cross when over and over again, save yourself, save yourself. He loved so much, he gave himself, gave himself. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. And so Romans 16, 20, 
the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. Satan's going to be crushed under your feet as the Holy Spirit finishes the work, cleansing the spirit temple, building us back into that house for the spirit to dwell. And we love others. In the Revelation 12, 12 text, those who are ready to meet Jesus, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. That conversion experience where fear to protect self has been replaced with love for God and love for others. And when that happens, then we rise up as a people, shining the beautiful name of God in our lives, crushing Satan under our feet. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for that day. We pray that you will open our minds to see the truth about you as revealed in Christ. Finish the work of reproducing your character, your name in our lives, that we can glorify you as we love others as you have loved us. And that people will see your true nature and your true character. And Satan and all of his methods will be crushed under the feet of those who love others more than themselves. We pray in your holy name. Amen.